Right, good evening, West End evening service. Here we are again. Uh, there's actually more of you here than I was expecting tonight, so thanks for coming to church. That's great. Um, I want to say a special good evening to everyone who is streaming in tonight. Uh, you can't cheer back at me, but we can cheer for you. Should we cheer for the streamers? Um, yeah, you guys, I'm sure you've got lots of good reasons to be at home just now streaming into church. Um, and I just want to say that we're praying for you. In fact, shall we pray for them right now? Because I'm expecting there's some people who are streaming at home who are maybe concerned about having the virus, or maybe they do have the virus, uh, or maybe they're just playing it safe. But either way, let, let's just pray for everyone that's watching just now and ask that God would meet them in their living room. Yeah, Lord God, we thank you so much that you are present with us here in this building. And Lord, you are with anyone that's tuning in tonight as well. And so, Lord, for anyone who is unwell, in the name of Jesus, I pray you would heal them. Lord, I pray that you would get them better. Lord, for anyone who is uh, crippled with fear or anxiety uh, or just really stressed about this whole situation, Lord, I pray for your spirit of peace, which transcends all understanding to be ruling and reigning in them. Lord, I speak a blessing over everyone who is streaming with us tonight. Lord, that you would be with them in their living room, uh, through their phone, whatever way that they're tapping into this. And God, I pray that you would reveal your love, Lord, your perfect love, which casts out all fear. Bless this time in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Right, so we are in a series on reawakening, which is exciting because we really believe that God is reawakening our land. We believe that revival isn't in the future, that we are seeing it now. And what we mean by this is uh, when a person encounters God in a real way, when a person gets to know God, gets to know of his love, then it's like their heart comes alive again in him. And you can't help but be transformed by that. You can't help but be moved by that. And we're seeing that happen in our church just now. We're seeing so many people coming back to him. And we believe that there is so much more that he wants to do right now in this time. And so in this series, what we've been doing is we've been gathering um, a bunch of the different topics that we would consider like marks of the reawakened heart or like attitudes of the person who's living in a reawakened lifestyle. Uh, and so we've been looking at things like uh, a lifestyle in the Bible, like knowing the word of God or prayer or, or uh, taking a Sabbath, or living in obedience, or humility. Like, these are all topics that we've been talking about uh, to inspire us, to draw near to God, to know him as we can be known, because we really believe that he wants to continue reawakening this land. And so this week, I was scheduled to speak to you on the topic of listening to God, which is an awesome topic. Like, I love that topic. And so I wrote a message on it on Wednesday, and then I sent the information to Caitlin, who made up a, a good slideshow for me for here for Sunday. And then on Friday, when I took out my notes to do some editing and to review, I really clearly felt like God was saying, Ruth, this isn't the topic for this week. I want you to preach on something else. So I was kind of like, okay, like, what, what am I meant to preach on this week? And I felt like God said, I want you to teach on repentance and prayer. Now I'm thinking, okay, God, if you're going to change direction and give me a different thing to preach on, could you not give me a more fun topic like dream interpretation or like the unconditional love of God? Wouldn't that have been more fun? But no, I felt like God wanted me to share with you today on not just prayer, but specifically repentance and prayer. I believe this topic is still in line with our reawakening series. Uh, not only is it relevant to what I think we're all living through right now in a, in a state of public crisis, this pandemic, 
But also, I have seen time and time in, in Scripture situations in which a community of people are facing a public crisis, and then they humble themselves, they spend time in repentance, and then they see God break through in incredible ways and rescue and deliver. So I think this is a lesson we can learn as a community, not just for now, but because we actually want to see God reawaken our land on a mass scale. And so I think that there are principles in this kind of prayer that are really powerful and important. So I've labeled this message, Heal the Land, Repentance and Prayer versus Fear and Coronavirus. How does that sound? That's pretty exciting. <laughs> so I hope that we can walk away from church today uh, feeling like we actually do have something to contribute in this crisis that is going on. And like there is something we can do to make a difference. So let's talk about this coronavirus, shall we just get it out there? Uh, the coronavirus, you can't see it, but you definitely see the effects of it, right? In fact, uh, I managed to find on the internet a photo of what the virus actually looks like. Do you want to see it? This is fact. This is what the virus looks like. Now, there is so much fear going on right now, isn't there? And I can totally understand why uh, the potential economic implications of this crisis are serious. Like, I have friends who own businesses and they're looking at the next couple months and they're thinking, like, is our business actually going to go bankrupt as a result of this? And that's scary. My husband's a freelance filmmaker and uh, photographer and we're looking at some of the public events that he's scheduled to film in the next few months. And we're like adding up how much we're expecting him to get paid for these and thinking, if these events get canceled, then that's kind of worrying for our family. And I'm sure there's many people here as well who are self-employed and thinking similar things. From a health point of view, uh, the coronavirus isn't really a threat to those of us that are healthy. But I'm sure we all know people who are more vulnerable, who maybe have a compromised immune system in some way, and something as simple as a flu or a virus like this really can have worrying implications for them and their health. Like I know there's probably some people thinking like, is my family member gonna be okay if this happens? And I say all of this not to agree with fear, because I don't agree with fear, but I do acknowledge the seriousness of the current pandemic. It is real. But church, I also want to say that we have an opportunity to join with God in this. We have an opportunity to bring peace and to pray to God for breakthrough to deliver us from the effects of this disease. So here's how I'm processing this. You see, I'm wondering, uh, what is it going to take to get us from here to there? What is it going to take to overcome the effects of this coronavirus? And the way I see it, there's a physical battle that we need to fight in the natural, and then there's also a spiritual battle that we need to fight by prayer, and that is going to come to freedom. So what I mean by that is, um, let's sum this up as like the physical battle being like the governmental and medical advice correctly applied. So like wash your hands and like self-isolate if you've got any doubts, or all that good advice we've been given, like let's apply that. That is fighting the battle in the natural. But then on top of that, let's pray. Let's appeal to God most high and ask him to move. And that is the spiritual battle that we take up. And so then I believe that the sum of these two things will result in freedom from the coronavirus and God carrying us through this. But you know, the more I think about this, I'm like, do you know what? Something on this big a scale takes a certain kind of strategic prayer. 
And I've seen this in the Bible several times. You see, don't get me wrong. All prayer is prayer, and I really don't want to overcomplicate that. Like prayer at the heart of it, it's relationship with God. It's, it's communicating with him. It's talking to him. It's hearing from him and responding to that. Like at the core of it, that's what prayer is. But there is something really significant about the combination of humility with repentance. And I think those things are like a springboard to powerful intercession. The combination of these things, they're like powerful weapons in the spirit that I think we need to pick up at a time like this. So here's my personal expectation of how this is going to work. I'm going to say uh, humility plus repentance plus prayer plus the governmental and medical advice correctly applied. That is what is going to result in not just healing from the coronavirus, but freedom from fear and reawakening in our land again. Like the opportunity I believe we have before us in this crisis is incredible. So here's a verse I want to anchor today's message in. It's from 2 Chronicles 7, 14, 13 and 14. So this is God speaking and he says, if I shut the sky so there is no rain, or if I command the grasshopper to consume the land, or if I send pestilence on my people and my people who bear my name, humble themselves, pray and seek my face and turn from their evil ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin and heal their land. That's what we want. We want healing in the land. Who here read First Kings as part of the Bible read-through in the last week or so? Yeah, me too. That's what my group were just reading. Um, and this passage, though, it's from Second Chronicles, is, is from that story we just read about where King Solomon dedicates the temple to God, and then this is God's response to him, and this is part of what is said. And this is a verse that we recite every week in our pre-service prayer meetings as we turn around and pray out for our community and pray for reawakening. So I want to tell you a bit about our pre-service prayer meetings and, and what we do. Uh, we meet for an hour before the service, morning and evening, all the locations. And we spend about 20 minutes praying that God would move in our service here, but also that he would reawaken this land. We pray for everything that's going on out there. And when we do that, we've, every week we follow this really intentional structure in prayer that uh, includes elements that can be found in all of the really big significant prayers of the Bible. And these elements are things like, you know, like we start in repentance and confession, and then we praise God, and then we call on his kingdom to come, and then we petition and we lift up all the things that we want to see him doing, and then we spend a lot of time listening to him, and then we praise him again, and then we feed back with other people, uh, what did you feel like God was saying, and what do you think that we need to pray about, and what do you think we need to act on? Now, personally, I'm not the kind of person that loves a structure. Like, I'm kind of more of a, let's make it up as we go along. Don't limit me to your structure. Let me just kind of do things in my own style. Like, that. that's kind of the way I'm inclined. But I have learned to really love and really appreciate how we structure our pre-service prayer times because I think that each one of these kinds of, of things in prayer is really effective and important. And I love that. But each time we begin our prayer time with repentance and we repent not just on behalf of our own stuff uh, but we also repent on behalf of our church and on behalf of our nation before we go into praise so i want to talk a little bit about repentance 
I think we would all agree that repentance is more than just a simple saying, I'm sorry. Uh, I live in my home with two very clear examples of uh, what I would consider to be legit repentance and what I would consider to be not so legit repentance. <laughs> and that is my four-year-old and my seven-year-old. Uh, so my seven-year-old is a very sensitive soul and he feels things very deeply. Uh, he, he really cares about a sense of right and wrong. And so all you need to do is speak to him with a stern voice and just say, Riri. And that is enough just to lose him for the night. Like he is sad. He like curls up on the sofa and he just can't get past the, the sadness of the fact that he did something wrong. And then I've got my four-year-old, Ayla. Uh, and some of you in the room know Ayla. And you know that she is fiery and strong-willed and opinionated. And she doesn't seem to have the same concept of sorry. Uh, when you confront her on something that she has done wrong or that she should maybe consider changing, uh, you'll get one of two responses from her. You'll either get the big smile on the face and say, I'm sorry, like I'm saying the right thing. Or she will just completely ignore you and shut down like she hasn't heard what you've said. Uh, do you want to hear a story that I think is funny? Um, so when I tell you the story, don't learn parenting from me because sometimes I'm not a patient parent and sometimes I can be a bit lazy. But that's not the point of the story. So just don't learn parenting from me. Um, but yeah, so Ayla, she's, she's a great wee character. Uh, but recently she, she, she won't go to sleep unless we literally sit with her and like rub her back until she falls asleep. Which is absolutely fine when she's tired enough that you just give her a wee rub on the back and then she falls asleep. However, the annoying thing is that sometimes she takes about half an hour to fall asleep. And sometimes I'm quite impatient and I don't actually want to sit in her room for half an hour rubbing her back. I just want to go and do my own thing. So something I've found to be very strategic and convenient is those few days when she has taken a pen and she has written her name on the wall with love hearts all around it, I will wait until bedtime before I acknowledge that I have seen that. And I will put her to bed and then I'll say, Ayla, I'm just going to go and get something from the kitchen, then I'll come back and rub your back, and she'll be like, okay. And then I'll go out and I'll say, who's written on the wall? Was that, was that Ayla? And then I'll come back in, and she will be fast asleep. <laughs> and then I can just go and do my thing. <laughs> I think we'd all agree that there is a sense of sorry that is actual sorry, and then there is just saying, I'm sorry because that's the right thing to do. There are a number of different words that are used in the Bible to communicate this sense of repentance or, or, or remorse over wrong actions. So I'm going to pick out a couple of them just to, to help you get a flavor of what they really mean. There's a Hebrew word called sub, S-U-B, which means to turn from evil and to turn to good. Some examples of this are in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 14.6 says, repent. Turn from your idols and renounce all your detestable practices. Repent. Turn away from your offenses. That's 1830. And 3311, turn. Turn from your evil ways. This word means turn from evil and turn to what is good. Another word in Hebrew is nahum, which means uh, it's got an emotional flavor to it. It's like being sorry, being grieved. In Greek, we've got metaneo, which is a change of mind or a regret or remorse. 
Mark 1.15 that says, the time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. That is like change your mind. Realize what you're believing is wrong. The kingdom of God is coming. Matthew 4.17, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Again, change your mind. Realize that that is not it. The kingdom of God is coming. And what I want us to capture from these examples is that repentance isn't just saying, I'm sorry. It's two things. It is turning from what is wrong to what is right. And there is a genuine, like a sense of, of grief or remorse. That, like, I'm kind of disgusted by that now. And I, I don't think I even like that anymore. True repentance requires being teachable to the Holy Spirit, who is our comfort and our guide. And when you love someone so much or trust someone so much that you really believe what they say, then I would say it is natural as a response to want to turn from what you have been doing to what you think you should be doing. True repentance isn't rooted in guilt, which makes us feel condemned. It's rooted in a love for God and an actual desire to be like, God, I want to do it your way. I don't want to do it that way anymore. Because I love you, and, and do you know what? Like, you've proven to be right and true before for me, so I want to trust you in this again. I don't even want that anymore. That's what true repentance is. So when God says in Second Chronicles 7:14, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves, pray, seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, this is what he's talking about. He's not just saying, if you say sorry, then I'll act. He's saying, come back to me. Turn away from that. Come and see things as I do. Then I will hear from heaven, forgive your sins and heal your land. That is what he's saying. And this concept of turning from sin and back to the Lord uh, is repeated throughout all scripture. This is not just an isolated verse with a strategic step-by-step -step how to heal the land. This is something that comes up all the way throughout. True repentance turns from what is wrong to what is right with remorse. So when we start our prayer times with a time of repentance, we're taking the time to check in our heart with God and to say, Holy Spirit, help me. Help me see things as you do. Have I stepped out of line? Is there anything that you want me to do to just like get back on board? Is there any wrong that I need to go and make right? Do I need to go and follow up a conversation with someone? And it's starting from a place of humility, seeking God's perspective and asking him how you can get back on board. Repentance takes humility. And the posture of humility takes teachability. But these things, repentance and humility, as I said, they are like a springboard into powerful intercession. And Laura has set me up perfectly because she spoke on humility last week. So she has set the stage for the message that I didn't even know I was going to preach this week. And we learned from Laura last week that this quote was not said by C.S. Lewis. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Apparently C.S. Lewis did not say that, contrary to what Pinterest might suggest. <laughs> and what, what we thought was interesting about this quote is that it, can, it kind of misses a bit of the fullness of humility because it can sound a bit um, self-deprecating like, oh, humility is about thinking that I am less, like I am nothing. And that's actually not biblical humility. What Laura taught us, and I've got a Laura Campbell quote here for you, 
is that the type of humility we mean is humility, she's taking a picture, <laughs> humility that is rooted in an expanded vision of who God is, leading us into more of Him. That I might be aware of my own limitations, yes, but in light of how incredibly good He is. See, the more we discover how good and amazing and wonderful God is, then we can't help but be like, wow, he is so good. He is amazing. He is gracious. He is compassionate. And then when you see that, it gives you a better perspective of where he is and then where you are at. And that doesn't mean that you have to be like, oh, woe to me. I am so rubbish and so unworthy of love. No, 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 no. That's not humility. It's more like the reality check of like, how good is God? And I know that I don't always measure up to that. But that doesn't mean that I am not good or that I am not worthy of love or that I am not uh, valuable to God. Another important theme that I'm noticing over and over as I read the Bible is that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Or in Proverbs 3.34, he mocks those who mock but gives grace to the humble. And I think this is another key to unlock why he answers our prayers from a posture of humility. We see this all throughout Bible. I'll, I'll give you a big list of lots of examples of this. Like, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. The little children are the greatest of these. Or it must not be like this among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. God selected Gideon, the youngest of the weakest tribe, to lead the people in battle. And even then, when he put together his army, God stripped it back to being even less people. So that when they won, all glory went to God and everyone was like, whoa, God did that. And then you've got David, who was the youngest brother, and he wasn't even strong enough and trained enough to pick up the swords to wield at the giant. And yet, with a pebble and a slingshot and help from the Lord, he defeated the giant. Then you've got the Israelites, who time and time again stray from God, who go away from his ways, and, and as a result of that, they find themselves in all sorts of hardship. But yet, when they come back to him and humble themselves and get back in line with God, then they experience peace in their land. We see this principle over and over. And when you see how much God loves humility, how much God breaks through when his people humble themselves, how much he, he just seems to respond to that, doesn't it make you want to be more humble? Here's a fun exercise if you want to grow in humility. If you're thinking, I could use some more humility in my life, or I know I've got a pride issue that maybe I should chip away at a bit, here's what you can do. Get a bit of paper and a pen, and just think, what are some examples I can think of of times that I have wronged people, or let them down, or hurt them, even if it was intentional? And just make a list. I'm sure as you reflect, things will come to mind. That's pretty humbling. Uh, the next step would be pray through that list, and honestly, before God, own each one of those things. Say, God, I'm sorry when I did this. I can see that that's wrong. I'm sorry. Just, just pray through that whole list. And then if you want to grow in even more humility, 
I would challenge you to contact the people on that list and apologize for when you've wronged them. And don't give them any defense or any context to help them understand why you did that wrong thing. Like, don't say that. Just say, hey, I was thinking about this time. I just wanted to say, I'm sorry. I let you down there. Will you forgive me? That is a fun exercise to grow in humility. And these steps of humility, they're statements of true perspective. It's not about beating ourselves up. It's about saying, God is holy and perfect and blameless. And yet I am not always that way. And I'm aware of that. And I own that. Humbling ourselves doesn't mean self-deprecating. You can still be made holy in him and blameless and pure. You can still be worthy of love and valuable and yet honestly own the fact that you don't always get it right and that you are sorry for that. Repentance is about remorse for our actions, a decision to turn from what is wrong to what is right. And humility is about growing in perspective of how great our God is and that we are not perfect. And so praying from humility is important because God opposes the proud and yet gives grace to the humble. That is why we start our prayer times with repentance and humility. So that's repentance on an individual level. I want to talk now about corporate repentance. What is corporate repentance? That sounds like Christian jargon. Okay, I'll tell you about it. Uh, re corporate repentance is like everyone repenting all together at the same time, or an individual repenting on behalf of all the people. And like I said, in, in our um, pre-service prayer times, we were in the habit of doing this. We pray and repent over our own sins, and then we repent over the sins in our church and, and over the sins in our city and our nation. And that is how we start our prayer times. So if humility is owning our own stuff, being honest with God and, and apologizing for it, why do we have to own other people's stuff? Isn't that self-deprecating? Or is it even necessary? Which is a good question. So I'm going to show you some examples from the Bible uh, of godly Christian people whose prayers include repenting on behalf of not just their own sin, but actually the sins of all the people. And I'm going to show you these examples and then we'll talk about them. So we've got Daniel. Daniel chapter 9. This is my favorite one. I love this one. Uh, the context here is that Israel was enslaved by the Babylonian Empire. We've got a heathen king ruling. We've got some really awful stuff going on in their culture, like child sacrifice. And yet Daniel identifies with the people in the land in an act of humility, and he asks for forgiveness. And I'm not going to read out the whole of this passage because it's quite long, but I want you to see quite how much of this prayer is just corporate repentance. Listen to this. It says, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, Ah, Lord! The great and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commands. We have sinned, done wrong, acted wickedly, rebelled, and turned away from your commands and ordinances. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, leaders, fathers, and all the people of the land. Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but this day public shame belongs to us the men of Judah, the residents of Jerusalem, and all Israel, 
and so on and so on. I'm going to skip down to verse 15. Now, Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a strong hand and made your name renowned as in, in this day, we have sinned. We have acted wickedly. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, may your anger and wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. For because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become an object of ridicule to all those around us. Therefore, our God, hear the prayer and the petitions of your servant. Make your face shine on your desolate sanctuary for the Lord's sake. Listen closely, my God, and hear. Open your eyes and see your desolations and the city that bears your name. For we are not presenting our petitions based on your righteous, on our righteous acts, but based on your abundant compassion. Lord, hear. Lord, forgive. Lord, listen and act. My God, for your own sake, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. Humility and repentance are strong weapons of warfare in the spiritual realm. I've got another example, Nehemiah 1. He says, I confess the sins we have committed against you. Both I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted corruptly towards you and have not kept the commands, statutes, and ordinances you gave your servant Moses. Another one's Jonah 3. We've got Jonah, the prophet, messenger from God, coming to Nineveh, telling them that God is so upset with the wickedness in the land that they're going to be destroyed. And then we've got the king in chapter three. It says here, by order of the king and his nobles, no person or animal, herd or flock is to taste anything at all. They must not eat or drink water. Furthermore, both people and animals must be covered with sackcloth and everyone must call out earnestly to God. Each must turn from his evil ways and from his wrongdoing. Who knows? God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. That's Jonah. Another example is Esther. Again, the Jewish people face a public crisis where they are going to be all killed and wiped out. And so they call a fast again. They ask people to humble themselves with prayer and fasting and to cry out to God for a miracle. And we know the end of that story. Esther appears before the king and she isn't killed. And the people are saved. And God had moved as a result of their humility and their repentance. And he rescued them. I want to go back to Daniel chapter 9. And I love this example because it gives us insight into not just what is happening in the natural realm where Daniel is praying and, and really stressed and really upset. But it shows us what is going on behind the scenes in the spiritual realm as well. And I find it so interesting that... It is like Daniel's been praying and fasting for 21 days at this point. And he's just poured out this epic prayer of repentance and asking for forgiveness. And then it is in this moment that the angel Gabriel finally busts in the scene and is like, I mean, you could read this yourself. This is my paraphrase. Uh, but he's like, hey, Daniel, from the day that you started praying and seeking God for understanding, God heard you and God released this message to you so that you could understand. But, sorry, we got held up in the heavenly realm where we were opposed by the prince of Persia. And so we were unable to get this message to you till now. 
but because Daniel humbled himself in prayer and fasting and repentance. Uh, another angel was released in the spiritual realm, which uh, backed up the battle there, and then they broke free from the prince of Persia, and they finally brought this message of understanding to Daniel that he had been seeking. Isn't that crazy? It's like Daniel's prayers and efforts and repentance and humility was not wasted on earth. It was doing something in the unseen realms, which led to breakthrough on earth. Stepping back into our current crisis with the coronavirus, right, I think that we are doing our best to fight this in the natural realm. And I'm encouraged to see that a lot of people haven't come to church today probably because they're self-isolating, and that, that is good. We're taking the wisdom that we're being told. We are washing our hands. We are being careful. We are being wise. And that is a battle we're fighting in the natural. Let's keep doing that. But also, I want to invite you this week to step up in the battle in the spiritual realm. Because I believe that our prayers can make a huge difference on that level that will then break through and have implications for what's happening in the natural realm. This stuff, like there is potential here. So let's talk about this deal with uh, corporate owning it. What is the, the deal with having to be like, okay, I uh, own in humility the, the sins of the land, not just my own sins, which we've seen these characters doing. So back to pre-service prayer. We repent on behalf of ourselves. Uh, you can probably guess what that's like. You know your own stuff that you need to repent of. I don't need to talk about that. But then we repent on behalf of our church. Here's how I pray when we do that bit. See, I'm thinking, right, in our church, and I know our church fairly well, like I can see sins in our church that I know God's probably not pleased with. And I can identify with some of them because there are sins that I know that I join in with that too. And I know that I'm just as bad. And those sins would be things like, uh, like sometimes I uh, join hands with fear and I'm just not as bold as I should be. And I recognize that that is not walking in faith. And I recognize that that is a sin. And I see other people do it. And I do it too. And I can say, God, I'm sorry for that. Would you forgive us for that? Or I know that I'm the kind of person who sometimes uh, listens too much to the voice of comparison. And I get too discouraged about myself. I don't believe what God has said about me to be true. And I get insecure. And I get down on myself and compare myself to what other people are like. And I know that that is sinful because that is not who God says I am. And so I can own that. I can say, God, I am sorry that in our church we compare ourselves too much sometimes. And please, would you forgive us for that? Or I know that sometimes I get jealous of what other people have that I don't have and I want. And I can own that. I can say, God, I'm sorry that in our church I see a jealousy issue. I know that I'm like that. I see it in other people too. And I am sorry. Would you forgive our church for this jealousy issue? Like those are things that I can own. But then there's also sins in our church that I see that actually I can't personally really relate to because I just, that's just not my issue. Um, like, like stealing things. I don't usually steal things. I don't think I've ever stolen anything in church. But I know that stealing things has happened because stuff gets stolen sometimes. But yet when I pray, I'm not going to say, God, forgive those thieves over there. When we're praying in a corporate time of repentance, I'd say, God, Sometimes in our church, there are like we steal and people steal, and, and I'm sorry, forgive us, forgive our church for this. And it's the same when we're praying for Glasgow as well. Like, like I see things in Glasgow that I definitely don't do. Like, I don't murder people, and some people do in Glasgow, or I don't take humans and then work them as slaves without paying them. That is not something I do. But I know that there are people in Glasgow that do that. 
And yet when I pray and repent on behalf of our city, I identify myself as being one in the same team as part of the city. And I say, God, would you forgive us? Lord, we repent of the sins in our city. We repent of, of the murder and the violence and we repent of human trafficking. And, and we agree with you, Lord, that is awful and that is evil. And we say, we are sorry, forgive us. Like, I don't separate myself because I'm on some, like, moral high ground. There are some contexts where we just own the fact that we're part of the team. And that means that we're proud of the things that we're proud of in the team. But we're also humble enough to own that the team is not perfect. And if one person lets the team down, the team is let down. And I think that God loves it when we consider ourselves unified with one another. He loves it when we consider ourselves unified with one another in acts of love. But I think he also loves it when he sees us considering ourselves unified with one another in humility and in owning the things we know that are not right and not good. And I think that prayers like that, they, they stir the heart of God. They stir him like he feels compassion. This is what he wants. He just wants his family to be family together. He doesn't want us to be divided. And so I think that is why when we pray from this posture of humility and repentance, he really feels stirred to act as a result of that. So I want to make clear a couple points because I'm sure there are lots of questions now <laughs> coming up having talked about this. Uh, but, but one of them would be, if God doesn't answer my prayer, is it because I'm a sinner? and I'm just not holy enough to pray effectively? Uh, my short answer is no, not necessarily. Uh, let me tell you more about that. Um, I don't want people to walk away from church discouraged and thinking uh, that you're too unholy to even try praying. That is not my message. So we've got guilt and condemnation that come from the enemy. And guilt and condemnation make you feel ashamed of yourself, make you feel unworthy and like you want to hide from God. If that is the sense and feeling you get when you reflect on your sin, uh, that is not the voice of God. That is the enemy. But conviction from the Holy Spirit tells us, keep going after God. Turn away from this towards this. But the fact that there is sin and there's imperfect stuff in your life doesn't bring into question whether or not God loves you. Because while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. And in him, he makes you holy and blameless and pure. He forgives you. So yes, turn from this to this. But he still loves you and he still wants you as you are. That is the voice of God. It doesn't make us want to hide. And I know there's probably some people here who are thinking, yeah, I know the things in my life personally that I probably need to shape up with God. And then there's probably also things that you're thinking, okay, I'm aware of this in my life, but I don't even know how to start on it. Like, this is such a complicated situation that maybe involves other people and other circumstances that I don't know how to make any steps to walk away from this sin. Or I don't know if I personally have the willpower or the strength to do anything about it. And if that is you, this is the advice I would give you. In humility, sit with God spend some time with him, lift up this situation before him and just tell him that. Say, God, I know this isn't right. I know this deep down. But right now, I just don't feel the strength to walk away. Or I don't feel the willpower. I'm, I'm really struggling. And just present yourself openly and honestly before him. 
Don't let your messy life hold you back from getting close to God. Get close to God and bring your messy life for him to help you with. The Holy Spirit is our comfort and our guide. God is slow to anger and rich in love. He is gracious. He can be trusted. And personally, I have found God to be very, very patient with my sin stuff. And the times that I've just been like, God, I'm being honest, I don't even know how to step forward from this. He has sat with me. He has been patient and he has helped me. As Daniel said, it is not because of our righteous acts, but because of God's compassion that he answers our prayers. And so legalism wants to say to you, stop sinning, be perfect, and then God will answer your prayers. And I, I just don't believe in that. I don't think that's how it works. I think that we need to come back to God. Yes, leave our sins behind, but even in those areas that we're struggling, in humility, sit with him and be real with him. And from that posture, pray and pray hard and cry out for him to move. I want to mention fasting as well because fasting came up uh, in, in some of those Bible examples. And some of you are maybe tracking and seeing where this is going and thinking, wait, is Ruth going to ask us to fast this week in a season when there's a virus going around? And we're trying to be healthy. Is that what she's about to say? Uh, my, my quick answer is no, no, I'm not going to ask you. I'm not going to tell you you have to fast this week. If you've got questions about the concept of prayer and fasting, uh, I actually preached a message on that in January, which you can check out online and, and that unpacks like what's the biblical case for that and what's some practical wisdom in if you want to have a go at fasting with prayer. As for this week and praying about this uh, crisis that is going on, uh, personally, I am going to pray and fast this week because I really believe in the power of prayer and fasting, because I'm generally a healthy person, and because I've prayed about it, and I feel like God's given me a piece about doing that. I feel like I've calculated the risks, and I've listened to God, and I'm going to do that this week. But I am not expecting anyone else to join me in that. I am not expecting any of my team to do it. I think that fasting is completely up to you. If you want to participate in prayer in that way, great. Let's do it together. If you don't want to do that or are concerned, then you don't have to. Just pray, just humble yourself in other ways. There is no guilt, there's no pressure to fast this week. So I wanna wrap this up with uh, something a little bit more positive of what we're aiming for. I've been saying for ages that uh, this year, 2020, is meant to be the year of perfect vision. Like, you know, like eyesight, like 2020. Yeah, okay. Uh, and the reason I'm saying that is because it just seems like everyone I talk to who has any interest in advancing the kingdom of God has seen this, I don't know, sequence of events in the last few years where like churches are multiplying, ministries are expanding, new things are starting, all with the heart of bringing the gospel out to people and making God's love known again in this land so that people can be reawakened. And it seems like in the last few years, so many things have come together that are presenting this opportunity so that if God wanted to bring people back to him on a mass scale this year, like we have some systems in place that we can receive them. And we, I want to say we're ready. Who knows if we're ready? <laughs> but we're expecting that God is moving right now in this land. We are seeing people come back to him and we think there is more. And then I'm looking at this coronavirus, which is shutting down public gatherings and, and crippling people in fear. And I'm thinking, this virus is getting in the way of some of the good plans we've got for the gospel to go out this year. Now, don't get me wrong. Like, 
God is sovereign. And if we all end up in lockdown and do FaceTime church, God is going to use that. Holy Spirit is going to be with us in our living rooms. It's going to be fine. But I want to pray that things don't keep getting shut down. I don't want to be a victim to uh, defeat and just being like, well, well, there's nothing we can do. We're just going to need to sit back. Like, no, I want to pray that the coronavirus stops. Like, I am done with the economic crisis. I am done with the fear of, oh, no, who is going to die next? Like, I don't want any more deaths. Let's be done with that. And so I'm saying, let's humble ourselves. Let's draw near to God in repentance and being real with him. And let's aim our sights high and think, what is the best that could happen this year? And then let's intercede for that. Let's cry out for God in his mercy to reach out and act in this place in a new way. I believe that we here as the body of Christ, we have this opportunity together. This isn't just an individual pursuit. But if we want to, we can pick up these spiritual weapons of humility, of repentance, and of prayer And the outcome of this global pandemic could be an opportunity for God to show his glory like never before. So let's be strong and courageous. And we'll keep washing our hands too. So here's my challenges for you this week. I'm going to invite you to join me in a spiritual cleanse week. Has anyone done a juice cleanse? Like that thing where you just drink juice and it's meant to flush all the toxins out your body. I've got blank faces before me. Has anyone heard of that concept? Maybe, yes. Right, so I'm calling this a spiritual cleanse week. And for that, I'm going to say by Wednesday this week, set aside 45 minutes of uninterrupted time to slowly read Joel 2 and meditate on it. Ask the Holy Spirit to guide you and show you how you can turn to him with all your heart. And this is just another great example in the Bible of public disaster and crisis coming and then people humbling themselves in repentance and then amazing breakthrough of God and encouragement and hope and light and life. And so just read that, ask God to speak to you, ask God to apply that to your own situation. And then this week, challenge number two, on Wednesday, Thursday and Friday, Uh, I want you to consider these days like intentional days of humbling ourselves before God. So pray prayers of confession and repentance. Be real with him about where you are at. If you've got practical things that you need to do to make stuff right, do those practical things this week and get all these loose ends tied up. Do whatever you need to do to turn wholeheartedly back to God in this time. And then on Friday, if you can, I want you to gather with other Christians if you're not self-isolating. If you're self-isolating, get on FaceTime with other Christians. And then together, cry out for God to heal the land, to free us from fear, and to bring a mass-scale reawakening. These three days, the Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, uh, it's not just me that's suggesting this. Actually, I got the idea from my scrolling of Instagram, where I'm seeing a lot of churches and a lot of Christians around the world who are saying, we're setting aside Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday for all together, prayer, humbling ourselves. And then on Friday, we are going to cry out to God with one voice from around the world. And I think that God loves his people. He loves his kids. And when we cry out in unity, it really stirs his heart. So we invite you to join us on that.